Welcome to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and the best moments in life. This is a place where we hear from people who've created a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. My own journey raising a child with a rare disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is the inspiration for this. But this isn't just about Duchenne or my story. We all have something we're carrying. That's just life. So this is a place for all of us, for conversation, for connection, and to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everyone. Today we're talking to, well, we're, we're talking to me. <laughs> That's right. We are switching it up today, and I'm the guest on this episode. Here's how it came about. So you might remember Mandy Vogler from season one. We talked about her beautiful family of 10 kids, her adoption journey to China, and learning that her son had a rare disease. It was a beautiful, beautiful episode. So Mandy called me a while ago, and she so sweetly told me that she had some questions for me, and that she wanted to know a little bit more about me, my own journey, my own story. And I thought, why not? Let's do it. So here we are. Mandy is the host, and I'm the guest. Let's get started. Marisa, I am just so honored to be able to chat with you a little bit today. And it's kind of been in the back of my mind for a long time to just hear your story. And you have done such an amazing job of sharing other people's stories. But even though we've known each other for a few years and we share the Duchenne's world with each other, I don't really know your story as well as I would like. And I think there's probably a lot of other people out there that would be really interested in hearing a little bit about your background and just how Team Joseph came to be. So I thought we would turn the tables a little bit. And I love that. I love it. Well, hopefully the seat won't be too hot, but I am kind of an open book. So let's do it. When we met a couple of years back, I mean, I was just so impressed by just so many of your beautiful character traits. And a lot of times that comes from some struggles and situations in life that cause us to grow and just become whoever it is we were intended to be. And so I'm really curious, can you just start maybe by sharing what was your upbringing like? Maybe just a little bit about your family or your parents. Let's go way back a few years. <laughs> Mandy, I love that because I think that sometimes things are coming together and conspiring to be the foundation of who we are. We just don't know it at the time. And it's sometimes years and years later that things make sense and we gain perspective and we start to understand how everything comes together. So the high level of 30,000 foot view, as I like to say, is that I come from a big family. I'm the youngest of six kids, which is, I think, why I felt such a kinship to you when we first talked, because you have six biological kids, but you have 10 children. I just always gravitate towards people from a big family because I think there's an interesting dynamic and things we learn about community and about sharing and getting along and not getting along and how to do that as well. So it's from a, a big family. My dad was a teacher for 35 years. My dad was a history teacher, high school. My dad was also a writer and a historian. My mom, in the 1960s and 70s, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but that's not all she was. My mom was an artist, a fine artist. She was an oil painter, incredibly gifted, and also made jewelry 
really beautiful pieces of jewelry. So I come from a background of a really big family, but also creativity. And I think that what's influenced me to get creative about finding solutions to things. And we are always encouraged to think outside the box. So were you closest to your mom or your dad, or do you feel like you were close to both of them? You know, sometimes you resonate with one parent just a little bit more than the other. Yeah. Well, I think I was close to both my mom and my dad, but in different ways, especially in my mom's later years, my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer when she was 80. And so that was a pivotal time. There was a real strong role reversal where I was a caretaker to my mom, not just medically, but also just emotionally and all my brothers and sisters. And I really were with my mom. I was always close with her. My mom was the life of the party. She was shy in a lot of ways, but with her creativity, she was funny. She had a really sharp wit and she was very, very youthful. I mean, all my friends love my mom. She still had big dreams at the age of 80. She still had plans of what she was going to paint next and create and where she was going to travel. So we had a real close relationship, different than my dad. So I would have to say my dad was really my best friend. My dad and I connected on a much deeper emotional, philosophical, intellectual level. That was the magic of my dad. My dad died just nine months before my mom. And we knew that he was in his final months and then weeks. And uh, my dad and I talked extensively about his funeral. He asked me to give his eulogy. And we talked a lot about his gifts to the world. And one of the things that I said in my dad's eulogy was that everybody thought they were my dad's favorite. So I think even all my brothers and sisters and I, we had these moments when you were with my dad, whether you're one of his children, one of his thousands of students, he touched over the years, a neighbor, a friend, you felt like you were the only person in the room. And my dad was interested and fascinated by the human experience. And he wanted to hear your story. And I really, really connected with my dad on that level. We spent so many nights in my teen years. We would sit up late at night watching late night talk shows and we'd be reading the newspaper and we'd have a box of crackers and a big block of cheese. And we would sit together on the couch and talk about life in the world and all the problems in the world. And we used to joke that we solved all the problems before we'd go to sleep at night. I had a really good relationship with both my mom and my dad, which as I've gotten older and heard more experiences from friends and acquaintances about family dynamics, I have a deepened appreciation for who my mom and dad were and how lucky we were as you know, six kids in a very busy household to really have pretty incredible parents. Yeah. They sound like amazing people, both of them. And I can see both of your parents and you, though, your mom with her foresight. I just feel like you have huge visions for the future. You're a planner, and that's really caused just a lot of organized involvement in your causes and the things you believe in. And I can definitely see how your dad has impacted that, too, and just your worldview and how you relate to people in general and their stories. Mm -hmm. I think that's a gift that both of your parents gave you. And it's amazing. It's amazing to see it come together in one person. Thanks, Mandy. Both of us have boys with two shots. And that's kind of where our paths started to cross. I'm just three years into our diagnosis. You're several years further down the road than I am. But it's still really important to me to hear how other people handled such a heavy diagnosis. Because we mm -hmm. all handle it differently. 
but all very similar too. So what was that like when Joseph was diagnosed? Tell me about that. Yeah, it's interesting, Mandy. And I think it's not just about Duchenne. And I think it's not just about a diagnosis. And I think it's not just about a disease or rare disease or even anything medical. If I kind of work backwards to this bigger picture and this, it's interesting you asked about my mom and dad, because I used to tease my mom after Joseph was diagnosed. And I would say to her, mom, why didn't you tell me that mothering, being a mother was so difficult and so heartbreaking? And why didn't you tell me how little control we have? I think the way we frame any response to a tragedy, a trauma, it has to do with the in my opinion, the notion that we think we're, we think we're in charge. Like we think we can control things. And in what I've learned is we don't really have much control. We can have influence and we can shape our responses to things, but we don't really have control over a lot of the things that happen in our lives. And I think we're in the information age where we think we can solve and we have an answer to everything. And I think we've lost a little bit of an understanding of the mystery of life and the unknowns. And that I believe is what hit me hardest when Joseph was diagnosed. I mean, Joseph was five. So I had taken him to the pediatrician and I said, he's not really running. He struggles to climb steps. And I was really naive. And I thought maybe he would need physical therapy or they were going to say, oh, he needs more of a vitamin or something very innocent. And that's kind of what I was leaning on is, well, this is going to be a simple thing. And so when the pediatrician watched him do a couple of physical moves and she left the room and then she came back in and she said, okay, Marisa, I've made an appointment for you tomorrow with a neurologist. And, you know, right away, neurologist kind of feels heavy. And I was like, wait a minute, what's going on? And she said, well, I'm seeing some signs. I think Joseph might have a form of muscular dystrophy. So she sent me downstairs to the lab with Joseph. And I'll never forget when the lab techs read the order for the blood work. They just looked at it and then they looked up at me and the one nurse looked at me and she just said, I'm so sorry. And then she walked away and I could see the emotion on her face. And I thought, what is happening? So I was able to suppress that dread, sort of that fear and that knot in my stomach until the next day. And that's when we went to the neurologist and they had preliminary blood work back. And he said, we're going to do genetic testing, but based on what we're seeing in Joseph's blood work, I'm you know, 99% sure he has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And I had not gone on the internet. I had not looked up information. I didn't want to know, quite frankly. I think instinctually, subconsciously, I was pushing back the time frame. I was trying to delay this diagnosis as long as I could. And I said, okay, well, what do we do now? And he said, you you didn't research this last night, did you? And I said, no, not at all. So he started to explain to me, and my ex-husband was there. He started to explain the progression of Duchenne and that it was progressive and it was degenerative. And I can still feel the tightness in my chest, literally thinking I am going to, I'm going to vomit on this guy's desk. And it's like somebody pulls the rug out from under you. And yet you still have to take a breath. You still have to function. Joseph was in the waiting room playing with a nurse. And so we walked out of there and I, I picked Joseph up and I remember I put him into his car seat and he didn't know anything. And he 
clapped his hands on the side of my cheeks as I buckled him in and he just shouted, I love you, mom. And I kissed the side of his cheek and I thought, okay, that's what this is going to be about. This is going to be about Joseph and it's going to be about love. And I have no idea what that means. And that's kind of how things started. I went home and I was in shock and I think in the earliest stages of grief, but I couldn't feel anything. I was numb. I wanted to give the diagnosis back. I was angry. I was in disbelief, but I knew that I had to get busy. So I was like, okay, Marisa, you get a pity party for like a day. Let's do it. Have a pity party. Let's be angry. Let's be sad. Let's be in denial. Let's try to pretend this isn't happening and then get on with it, get over it and, and let's get busy because I knew that I'm wired in such a way that I couldn't curl up into a ball. I was not gonna take it sitting down. I had to know that no matter what happened, no matter what Joseph's future held, I wanted to be able to tell him that I left no stone unturned for him and that I fought for him. And I also realized that my other two children were gonna be watching. And I was going to have an opportunity to show them one way to handle adversity and grief. And what was that going to be? And it took me some time, of course. You don't have all these revelations within the course of a couple of hours. But it made me realize that I didn't have control over Dusha and I couldn't give it back. I didn't have a choice, but I could influence what that road looked like. And that was kind of what I focused on and how I channeled my grief. Hmm. Yeah, I can relate a lot to what you just said. When we're handed big things, it kind of gives us a platform to have more influence in a wider circle. And when you're handed that heavy diagnosis, I think you do have two options. It's a fork in the road a little bit. And you can do the pity party way or you can roll your sleeves up and say, how are we going to cope with this? And how are we going to make a difference in our circle? How did your parents support you in this? Were they supportive or were they in shock themselves? What was that like? I think it's all of those things, you know, so when we came home from the neurologist appointment, that first day Joseph was diagnosed, my mom and dad were watching our other two kids. So my parents were with the older two kids. And I remember coming in the door and I just said to my mom and dad, I need to talk to you. And they were sitting at my dining room table and I couldn't look at them. I couldn't look in their faces. I couldn't look in their eyes. And they were sitting next to each other. And so I went around behind them and I put my arms around both of them. And I kind of leaned my head in between their heads from the back. And I just whispered about the diagnosis. And I whispered about what the progression was and what the future could look like. And Joseph's potentially very limited lifespan. And I'll never forget my dad. My dad hung his head and I could feel him shaking his head. And he just said, oh, not Joseph, please, please not our Joseph. And that was the first time that I really started to understand the grief of a grandparent. And my mom explained it to me later how my grief was for my child. And she said, and that's my grief. My grief is for my child, which was me. And she said, and my grandchild, it's this compounded form of grief. And it's the most helpless feeling. 
And my mom and dad struggled with it. I mean, it broke them. It broke their hearts. And that was part of my inspiration too, as I thought, oh man, if we can just use this diagnosis, not as some scary death sentence, but what if we use it as a call to really live? Because none of us are getting out of here alive. Nobody knows what their time is. And I don't know, quite frankly, why we avoid talking about death so much. I mean, you know, there's that old saying, there are two things you can count on in life, right? It's death and taxes. So I always think, why are we so in denial of the fact everybody goes at some point? And what if we could use that as an inspiration to live, you know, more fully, to laugh a little bit more, to love more generously and freer, to really focus on the important stuff? And that's really what we started to do. And that was my number one goal with Joseph and my other kids is to use this as a reason to live. And so my mom and dad were definitely a part of that. They helped with fundraisers and my dad and I used to go to breakfast once or twice a week. And he became sort of my sounding board for a lot of things related to how I was going to manage team Joseph and what the vision looked like, as well as just for me and the emotional part. That's beautiful. I'm so thankful you had that support when you needed it. So let's talk a little bit about Team Joseph. That's where your passion is currently. So many things intertwined. It's such a beautiful program, a beautiful organization that you put together. Do you want to share how Team Joseph came to be? You know, Mandy, I think Team Joseph, it was probably born in my heart the day that Joseph was diagnosed because I, I knew that I wanted to do something. I just didn't know what it was. And what I started to look at was, well, let's fix Duchenne. (laughs) Let's fix this. I was so naive. I mean, I had to learn how to spell Duchenne. I had to learn how to pronounce it. I would sit up at night at, you know, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, researching, reading science publications as if I could understand them and knew what they were really about. But I was just, I was desperate to understand it. I was desperate to get a handle on it. And I knew that. I wanted to use Joseph's journey for good and to make a difference. And so my number one goal was to fix Duchenne. I was like, what if we just get rid of it? And I didn't know at the time how incredibly complex this disease is and how difficult solving it really is. When I started Team Joseph, that was my focus was funding research. And it was when Joseph's condition progressed that I really started to think about life with Duchenne. So research is you know, an incredible promise for the future. And we need research. And we've put millions of dollars into research and we're super proud of some of the progress that's been made. One of the projects we funded is in clinical trial and now in commercial development. And so there's wonderful parts about funding research, but it was when Joseph lost the ability to walk and I was navigating insurance issues and trying to get him a power wheelchair and figuring out how to get a handicap accessible van and modifying our home. And at the same time, my daughter was graduating high school. My middle son was in high school. Joseph was in middle school. Both of my parents were in their decline and I was caregiving for them. To top it all off, our 13-year-old golden retriever had to be put down. We lost our dog. I mean, there was just so much going on. And I remember thinking, what is my capacity? Like, what's my breaking point? And 
I used to literally some nights be too tired to go to sleep. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but if anybody listening has been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And something came to me one night as I was just trying to turn off my brain and go to sleep. And I thought for all that I am navigating right now, I am so darn fortunate. It almost sounds ridiculous to say that out loud, but it's the truth. I mean, I have great health insurance for Joseph. I have a supportive community. I feel most days emotionally, I feel pretty strong. I don't have any other health issues that I'm dealing with or my other kids are dealing with. So for all that I was navigating, I had some advantages and I thought, what do people do if they don't have this? And that's really how this next part of Team Joseph came to be. And I started talking to doctors about how people navigate this journey. And they were saying they don't navigate it. They can't come to doctor appointments. They're housebound. I mean, once boys lose the ability to walk, they're stuck at home if they don't have a van. And that made me, I guess the the best word I can think of is I was furious that dealing with something that's so heartbreaking and so difficult to manage is pay to play. And it's elitist, you know, you can go to a good doctor if you can take time off work and if you can travel and you can attend conferences and get plugged into the community and develop a support network if you can afford to do it. And you can get the best wheelchair, which has a direct impact on your child's health and quality of life if you can afford that, if you have good insurance. And I couldn't reconcile that that was the way that this had to be. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I couldn't change the whole system. I wasn't going to do that but I knew that I could make a difference one family at a time. That is how the most impactful change happens is one family at a time. And so Mm -hmm. I just started thinking about how can we help people? How can we maintain our focus on research, which is hope for the future, but how do we help families right now today in this moment, get through the day? That's kind of how the assistance part of team Joseph started. And that was with my friend, Kelly, who's got a background in insurance. She wanted to fight insurance battles, which is a whole nother aspect of life with a medical condition or a disease or a rare disease. So we just really put our heads together and we're like, let's see what we can do to help families. That's how it started. And I'm so, so excited that Team Joseph has given out over a million dollars in direct assistance to families in the last three years to help them with all these things, to help them get through the day, have access to good care and have the equipment that they need. That's huge, Marisa. That's huge. I know I was shell-shocked. I I don't think I rolled my sleeves up as quickly as you did. I was more in a fetal position a little bit longer. And I remember the same thoughts, like, what do I do tomorrow? How do people handle this diagnosis? And I had some fairly good support in the medical world. And somehow I learned about this world-renowned doctor out on the East Coast. And I thought, I got to get my son, Judah, there for treatment evaluation and those kind of things. And I remember it was in making that appointment that they mentioned Team Joseph. They already knew you and what Team Joseph was all about. And we weren't destitute at that time, but it was definitely a time in our life where things were more snug financially. And we have 10 kids. I'm a nurse. My husband's a special ed teacher. We have a very busy home. I just remember them insisting on us getting in touch with you. And so we did. And you and I chatted for a few minutes by phone. And I kind of felt, I'm sure there's more people in this world that need this more than I do. And you guys were so wonderful. I think you just knew the emotion. You knew the stage of grief. Mm-hmm. You're just like, no, Mandy, we want to do this for you. This is one thing we can take off your plate that you don't have to worry about. 
such a huge blessing to me, not just for the financial part of it, but I felt like I had friends and connections. And it can be a very isolating disease because Duchenne's is fairly rare. So the people that you know are often not in your local neighborhood or local town. And so just knowing I had people that were willing to help me get the things I needed for Judah. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes we think as Americans, we're privileged over a lot of the countries in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, here we are still having kids that can't get out to even see their doctor. Absolutely. Stores and things that they need taken care of. It's amazing. I'm so blessed that you were inspired to come up with Team Joseph. Well, Mandy, it's interesting you said that when you talk about living in the United States. And my dad had a beautiful compassion for really the human condition. And one of those late night talks when we were sitting up on the couch together, eating cheese and crackers, he said to me on more than one occasion, Marisa, when you go out into the world, one of the most important things you can remember is that you being born into this family, in this town, in this state, in this country, in this community was just luck. You did nothing to deserve this. You did nothing to deserve the advantages that you have, but you can pay it forward and you can show your appreciation for them and your understanding for how fortunate you are by the way that you, you go out into the world and how you look at and how you treat other people. And one of the things my dad used to just, he used to get so angry when people would be righteous and say things like, oh, you know what? People need to take care of themselves and they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And my dad used to say, some people don't even have boots. So when you say things like that, it comes from a very narrow viewpoint. And I think probably one of the greatest things he taught me was to set aside your own viewpoint and to be curious and to learn about other people and try to have a sense of understanding of who they are and where they come from and what their background is. That's really the only way that you can lead with compassion and love and help people is to understand that everybody doesn't come from the same place. It doesn't make them any less worthy. And in the world of Duchenne or any struggle with the child, it doesn't mean their child shouldn't have the best care just because they're at some disadvantages. We're in this time, I think, in the world of isolation in general. I think technology is amazing but I think we didn't have a lot of foresight of how to manage technology. And I think in general, having nothing to do with rare disease, nothing to do with team Joseph in general, I think as humans, we become very isolated and we don't sit on our front porches. We don't look people in the eye at the grocery store and make friends with people while we're picking out our grapes and strawberries. And I think that we've become so focused on self-care I hear that all the time. Like people say, oh, Marisa, you need to take care of yourself. But I think what we need more than anything, Mandy, is we need community care. We need to take care of each other and we need to be good to each other and be there for each other. So all the practicalities of why we do the family assistance in Duchenne is, yes, the equipment, it's the travel, it's getting to doctors, but it's also just the sense of knowing that you're not in it alone and that we are here for each other. And so I'm super excited about that we've given over a million dollars in direct assistance to families, but the stuff I'm most excited about that fills my heart 
it's nothing that I even know how to describe. It's the conversations with families and it's the multiple phone calls and the hours and hours on the phone with somebody who's struggling and doesn't know what to do next. And it's the camaraderie, it's the community, and it's it's the love. And we need so much more of that in the world. So I remember that first conversation with you and I have to tell you, I get as much out of it as, as I give. There are days where I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing or I'm struggling. I have days where I'm still in the fetal position or I, I am overwhelmed with grief. We can do both. We can be honest about our emotions and have bad days, but we can still do good and have a lot of fun along the way and be joyful. Mm-hmm. We just need to be a lot more intentional, just having that genuine relationship that can show each other how much we love and care for each other. You know, Mandy, I think the other thing too in this information age we're in is that we think we know so much and we're so focused on fixing things and we're always striving for the next victory. I look sometimes at Joseph and his joy and the way that he lights up the room. And I think, what if we don't need to fix this life we've been given? What if we just need to live it? So liberating and it's so inspiring and it's so much more fun. (laughs) You touched on Joseph just there a little bit about how he lights up the room. And I've had the privilege of meeting Joseph a couple of times and I totally agree with that statement. He does light up the room. Where Where is he at and what he, is he doing today? And how has he really kind of taken your, your thoughts on living out today and making the most of it? So Joseph's about to turn 20, which is really hard to believe. He was diagnosed when he was five. So even in this 15 years, that's probably why I can say things like, we just need to live this life, not try to fix it all the time. I would love, by the way, I would love for Joseph to be fixed. I don't say that lightly, but I know that what I owe to him is to be in the moment and to focus on what's in front of us today. And I think we both do that for each other. So he's about to start his second year in college. Joseph was determined that he would go to Michigan State University. He has been an MSU fan from the time he was a little kid. It's the only college he applied to, much to the dismay of his older brother and sister who were like, Joseph, you can't only apply to one college. And he was determined. So he got into Michigan State, went to Michigan State last year in his freshman year, lived in a regular dorm room. I mean, Joseph's in a power, a big, huge power wheelchair full time. He needs a lot of equipment, but Michigan State was just incredible in accommodating him. And they modified a regular dorm room for him and a bathroom in his hallway. And so he's just figured it out. And in my case, in your case, Mandy, Duchenne isn't who they are. It's what they have. I'm not at all diminishing it. I mean, it is a devastating, catastrophic diagnosis. I don't want to diminish the severity, but I also don't want to give it more more control and more weight than it deserves. So I've just always said, you know what? This is Joseph's life. Joseph is driving this bus in Duchenne. Has to be along for the ride, so be it. But it can sit in the back. You know, Joseph's in charge. Joseph drives this vehicle. And so that's really kind of how we've approached it. Yeah, that's beautiful. Proud of him. When we have a big thing in our lives, you know, it kind of frames everything that we do. And I've always thought, let's not ask permission to be happy. Like, let's not feel guilty about that. Like, let's just live gratefully. No, it does. I heard a quote the other day from a young lady that had terminal cancer. 
And she said, you don't have to wait until it's not hard to be happy. One of the greatest examples, Joseph had turned 18 and he came careening into the kitchen in his wheelchair and he was his best friend, Andrew, his roommate at college was with him. And Joseph said, mom, I have to talk to you. And Andrew said, you know what, Joe, I'm going to wait outside. And Andrew's like family. So right away, I'm suspicious. I'm like, what, what is up with you two? Andrew, you never wait outside. He's like, I'll, I'll be outside, Joe. And so Joseph looked at me and he said, mom, first of all, I want to say to you that I am 18 and I do not need to ask your permission for anything anymore. I am an adult. And I was like, oh boy. I said, Joseph, that's not like a great way to start a conversation. He goes, I got to go. I just want to let you know, I have 20 minutes. I got to be at the tattoo shop. They called me, they have a cancellation and they can get me in right now, but I got to go. And I'm not asking permission. And I just started laughing and I said, oh boy. Okay. So two things, Joseph, I want to say to you is number one, it's permanent. So just give this a little thought and maybe don't get it somewhere that it shows a lot, like, you know, on your face or your neck or whatever. And he just started laughing. He goes, I got it, mom. He sped towards the door into the garage and he paused and he turned and he looked back at me and he said, mom. And I said, what buddy? And he said, I'm really living. I am really living. And he turned around and he zoomed off, you know, went down the elevator, the lift in the garage, got in the van and keep in mind, Joseph's driving his van. And I just, I paused and I took all of this in and I thought, here's my 18 year old kid having the time of his life, getting ready to go off to college, having a blast, going to get a tattoo, driving his van to get there. And I thought his comment about, I'm really living uh, that just, that rocked me. And I thought, how many of us can say that on a daily basis? And it's so powerful to be able to have those moments. And I can tell you, Mandy, honestly, I don't know that I would be as joyful as I am if I wasn't carrying the weight of Duchenne alongside. We don't have to be laughing and happy all the time. Right. We can be sad and we can allow grief in. Mm-hmm. We just don't have to stay there. Right. No, that's so true. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I feel like I've gotten to know you at a whole new level, and I appreciate you being willing to let me turn the tables on you. Is there anything that you would like to share with the listeners before we bring this to a close? I think one of my favorite memories is of time with my dad in his final months of life. He was in an assisted living facility. He had Parkinson's and he had sundowners pretty severely sometimes. And for anybody who's not experienced that with a loved one, it's when nighttime comes and and the sun goes down and, and it gets dark. Sometimes there's some disorientation and a lot of fear, especially among our older folks. And when they're not in their home, my dad, my mom and dad lived in our childhood home. They were married over 60 years and lived in our childhood home. And it was a big transition for my dad to leave and heartbreaking. So my dad, when it was nighttime, my dad used to call me and I I could have just been there. Like I would have been there for dinner with him, maybe tucking him in. And I would come home and to my own kids and get them settled in bed. And sometimes 10, 11 o'clock, sometimes it was midnight and my dad would call me and he was afraid. And he would just 
with a quivering voice, he would say, I'm afraid. I don't know where I am. I need you. I need you to come and sit with me. And I knew that I could hang up and maybe he'd be okay. Or I could call the nursing station and they would give him something to help him calm down. But what I always did is I, I got in my car and I drove to him Mm. and what would help my dad is I would put in his favorite CD, Patsy Klein's greatest (laughs) hits, and he would be in his bed and I would sit on the floor and I would lean my head on his mattress and I would hold his hand Mm -hmm. and listen to the music until he fell asleep. And then I would quietly tiptoe out and I would drive back home. And it was those moments, Mandy, that I think that happiness and love the real love, like not the emotion love, but love the verb, like the act of loving someone. Those are not big, huge gestures that are often public or cost money. The real beauty happens in the teeny tiny quiet moments, often as it was with my dad in the dark, in the middle of the night, nobody's watching. That to me is like where real meaning and the richness of life comes in and where we we fill our souls. I've never been so exhausted as I was in my dad's last year of life, but I've also never felt so much love and so much good in the world. And I think that's, you know, maybe that's what I want to say is that life is filled with tragedy and heartache and difficulty, but it's always matched by love and goodness. We just have to be open to it. I totally agree. Awesome. I feel like there might be a part two and a part three to this. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. There might be. There might be. It's been a long road, Mandy. I've got a lot of, I got a lot of thoughts in my head. So there you have it. A little bit of my story a little bit about the background of Team Joseph, the Duchenne Family Assistance Program, and really some insights into the spirit of this podcast, which has so much of my dad's heart and soul woven throughout it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And I'm sending a big thank you out to my dear friend, Mandy, for being curious and for wanting to share my story. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support for Making Our Way was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics, Pfizer, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org. Thank you.